Good morning again. I got the joy of having an unanticipated visit to Minnesota this week. So for most of the week, I was up in the snowy blizzard. And if you like excitement, rent a rear-wheel drive car in the midst of a blizzard, and you'll get a little more excitement during your, uh, your drive. So I drove a few hundred miles then, and I think it snowed a foot last week. And... Um, it was a very low-to-the-ground car. So I'm a fool, <laughs> and good morning. <laughs> While I was there, uh, I, I was there to, to fix a problem, one that we've been dealing with for a while now, and I've been trying to fix it remotely. I have a manufacturing system I'm partly responsible for, and it has not been working for a month. And we launched a product on it the day before it stopped working. So there's been a, a lot of chagrin over this problem. And I don't know if I fixed it. Again, notice the aforementioned fool. We'll, we'll see tomorrow. But one of the things I found was that over the course of time, uh, we have water running through a, a rotary part in this system. And due to a process called galvanic corrosion, it had eaten through an inch of aluminum and punctured a hole. So there was a, an invisible part that was filling up with water, and uh, we put a lot of power into these so that this became a giant reservoir. And you can see in that processes of decay. And meanwhile, I, in the evenings, I spent some time with the people that we know there in Minnesota, and one of my friends had recently run for Senate in Minnesota, and his seat was the deciding seat between a Republican-controlled Senate and a uh, Democrat-controlled Senate. And he lost by a few votes. And so now uh, Minnesota is a... Uh, all, all, all three components of government are, are held by the Democrats. When you think about these things, the, the corrosion and what at least seems like a loss in a political party, and... And consider what Jesus called us to pray. When he said, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, does it have anything to do with those kinds of situations? I was really busy, so I, I uh, unfortunately my text this morning is quite short, so it was easy to think about it as I was driving around trying to fix this, these problems. But I, I want us to consider that. While I was there, I asked a number of people from different church backgrounds whether they, they pray the Lord's Prayer, and particularly whether they pray for the coming of the kingdom of God. And the responses, as you can imagine, are, are mixed. Uh, many people know the Lord's Prayer in, in the church, but whether we pray it and what we mean when we pray it varies a lot. So listen to these words which Jesus called his disciples to pray. He said, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our sins, our, our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we discuss this, let's go and ask God for his help this morning. Father, we ask that in your great mercy and grace, 
as you call us into your presence to meet with us, that you would feed us with your word. Speak to us this morning. Give us ears to hear that are open, board open to hear your word and to, uh, to have it embedded within us. Lord, we want to obey you, so we pray that you would bless us this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I was thinking about this prayer, and particularly within the context of Matthew's gospel. The, the Lord's Prayer is given in Luke 11 as well, and I, I want to read that just by way of contrast to see if your ear can pick up what is different. A lot of times we, we use Matthew's rendition, and we forget that there is a, a different, slightly different, shorter rendition in Luke 11. So there, Jesus says, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. If you compare those two, what you'll notice is missing is the reference to heaven. There's a couple of other differences, but in Matthew, Jesus says, Pray this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he says, pray this, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Both those references are missing in Luke's gospel, but they're important to the theme and the understanding of Matthew's gospel, of how the incarnation leads to the cross and the authority of Jesus invested upon him at the resurrection. All these are embedded in Matthew's gospel in this idea of heaven. So throughout Matthew's gospel, what you'll find is that Jesus refers to God as my Father in heaven. It's so repetitious that, that you, you, you stop noticing it all, but it, it's tautologistic. We know who God is. We know where he is. And yet Jesus says every time, my Father who is in heaven, and he calls us to do the same thing. He tells us, your Father who is in heaven, and pray to this, my Father. Pray like this, my Father, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And corresponding with that, if you think about the differences between Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, Matthew, Matthew uses the word, the kingdom of heaven. Almost every time, four times he talks about the kingdom of God, but every other time his reference is to the kingdom of heaven. And we have then this recorded phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what we want to talk about then is why it's shaped this way. Why is Matthew's gospel shaped from heaven to earth? Always we're looking to heaven, to the Father who is in heaven, to the kingdom that comes from heaven. And our prayer is even directed based on that, that God's will who is in heaven, that's done in heaven, would be done on earth as well. And if you read carefully through the gospel, you'll notice many, many, many references then to, to heaven and to heaven and earth together to the will of God being accomplished on earth as it is in heaven, not just here in the Lord's Prayer, but it's important to understanding Matthew's gospel. Now, in that understanding, the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, or my Father in heaven, is not used elsewhere in the Bible. And so if you go to look for an Old Testament background, you won't, you won't find a discussion directly of my Father in heaven, or the kingdom of heaven. 
but there is a growth in this idea. And what I, what I want to show first is uh, a, a marriage of Old Testament backgrounds that brings us to this idea of my Father in heaven that's giving us the kingdom of heaven. That's the direction that, that we're headed. And hopefully it will help us understand a little bit about how to pray this prayer after the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus where he's seated at the right hand of God and he has this authority. He is the king. So do we continue to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, if in some sense it has come? What is this kingdom that we're praying for, that we're looking for? And so first I'd like you to turn back to Daniel chapter 2. And if you begin looking for references to the God of heaven or the kingdom of heaven, what you'll find is that they, they begin coming once Israel is in exile. So Ezra and Nehemiah refer no longer to just Elohim or Yahweh, but Elohim of heaven, the heavens. He comes from the heavens. And so there's this transition that takes place in the name of God, in the reference of God, and we see that in Ezra, Nehemiah, and the book of Daniel, all occurring as we look from captivity to the, the restoration of Israel. And so I just want to remind you then of this passage in chapter 2 that, that we know. So we're going to read then beginning, uh, we'll read a few verses from 19 and then, and then skip to the vision. So in chapter 2, verse 19, the mystery vision was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So you see that reference, and it, it happens throughout, throughout the book, throughout the, the restoration, that there is this God of heaven. And if you, you stop and consider why that might be for just a minute, we don't just have God, the maker of the heavens and the earth anymore, or Yahweh, the one who's rescued his people, who keeps his promises but now the people are in captivity, and there is another sitting on the throne. You have Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Cyrus, all sitting on the throne, ruling in some sense over God's people. And so it would make sense when we're thinking about the fulfillment of the promises of God. Now, now there's an expansion outside of the nation of Israel. An expansion looks upward so that we have the entirety of the earth underneath the God of heaven, and his will will be done on earth. And this is the promise that in captivity the nation looked forward to. And so Daniel blesses the God of heaven. And Daniel answered uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He asked all of his wise men to interpret it, and he wanted to make sure that the interpretation was correct, and they failed. So Daniel comes in, and he's prayed and answers. And he says, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. It should remind you of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it's he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to the men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and the hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, and you've made known to us the king's 
matter. So notice then in considering our subject of this kingdom, thy kingdom come, the kingdom of heaven, if you recall, and we're not going to look at all the passages as you think through the gospel of Matthew and all the references to the kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure hidden in a field. It's a mystery. It's a secret in which God calls his people to see and to, to know that secret. It's a secret that he's revealed not to the wise men of the world, not to the wise men of Babylon, but to babes, to infants, to those that are lowly. And he reveals this secret to them, and it's the secret of the kingdom of heaven. So skip over to verse 31, and let's read about that secret. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, and its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you continued looking until the stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed, all at the same time, and they became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we shall tell you its interpretation. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Again, it should remind you of the end of the Lord's prayer. To you, O God, is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he's given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And after you there will arise another kingdom, inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, and as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and some of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. And it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself, itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy." So we have the foundation then of a reference to God in heaven and to the kingdom that comes from heaven. We have a little more work to do to build out the way that Matthew begins to refer to the kingdom of heaven and my Father who is in heaven. But I, I want you to notice here that very much this kingdom is a kingdom of the earth. And so it's put in line with the kingdoms of the earth as we move forward in history from Babylon and the Medes and the Persians and Greece and, and Rome mixed with the, the Jewish state 
until finally the stone emerges and the kingdom is set up, it's initiated. And so when you read this, and this is your background, and then you hear John the Baptist announce, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's coming right now. And that, that occurs after Jesus' birth, the Emmanuel God with us has descended from heaven, and he's walking around amongst us, and Herod, the king, disappears from, from the scene, and immediately we hear now, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's this kingdom, the kingdom that will crush and overturn all of the previous kingdoms in this vision. And it's a kingdom of this earth that's important to what we pray for. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray, we're called to pray for God's will to be done on earth, for his kingdom to be set up in, on earth. His will is done in heaven. And we see the inauguration of that kingdom. The kingdom, is, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then in the beginning of the book of Matthew, the incarnation of God becoming man initiates that nearness, the closeness, the coming of the kingdom in which we can expect that finally, not, not just Nebuchadnezzar will be brought low, but each of the successive empires which God has used to house his people will finally be crushed in the kingdom, the kingdom that comes from heaven. And this kingdom will endure. If you would flip over... A couple pages to chapter 4, verse 34. Just one more comment out of the book of Daniel. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar heard and, and, and believed, but his heart became proud because he was, he was lifted up. He was the king that God had raised up. His heart became proud, and so God humbled him. He made him eat grass like a beast of the field for seven periods of time. And in verse 34, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing." But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and the inhabitants and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at that time, my reason returned to me. So Nebuchadnezzar, he says, this dominion, this kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It's one that endures through generation. So it won't be cut off like the kingdoms before. It won't be replaced by another kingdom. It endures from generation to generations, and in it, the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as, as nothing. It's a kingdom that comes from heaven, and then he explicitly says, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. So here in what Nebuchadnezzar says, and what he sees after his period of humbling, he sees the fullness of that future in which the God of heaven comes down and establishes his eternal kingdom among men, and the will of God in heaven is established on earth among the inhabitants of men. That is what we're called to pray for. Is the very thing Nebuchadnezzar was looking at, this kingdom that comes down from heaven. So you remember, Matthew uses the phrases, my father... 
who is in heaven and the kingdom of heaven. What we saw here in Daniel is that one of the precursors to that reference, which is peculiar to Matthew. It's specific. He's the one that introduces it biblically. My Father who is in heaven. One of the references is the God of heaven of the exile, the one who's coming to rescue his people who establish an eternal dominion. But Jesus says repeatedly, my Father in heaven. And so what he's done is he's combined the reference to the God of the exile that restores his people with the reference that's most closely associated with the covenant that he gave David. So if you would turn then again to 2 Samuel 7. Remember God's promise. And we'll look in verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your seed after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. But this is, this is not new to the Bible. All the way back from Genesis, Adam was called to to multiply, to fill the earth, to rule, to subdue it. It, He's called to be a king. And we see that reflected in the promise to Abraham. He's going to be given an inheritance, which is nations and a kingdom, a land that's essential to what it means to be a kingdom, rule and realm, and kings will be born from him. But it, it comes to the fullness of expression here in the covenant that God told David the one that he made with David, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. That covenant particularly is what looks like it's in jeopardy when when, uh, the nation of Judah was captured by Babylon, when the kings became puppets and they were paraded around, their eyes poked out. It looked as though with... Jeconiah and the curse that God gave him, it was the end of that promise, that God was going to fail in keeping the promise. But Matthew, when he combines these two things, the God of heaven that reigns over the people in exile, that brings them back to the city of Jerusalem to establish his house there, and the God who made the promise to David, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me, are the same person, the same promise. And so, Something we know well because looking in in retrospect, it's clear that the God of heaven himself will come to be king. That's the only answer to these promises. And so when Matthew talks about my father in heaven, it's an allusion to all of this together, to the kingdom coming. My father in heaven has sent me, his son, to be the Davidic king, to be more than a king of just a nation, but a king of kings and a lord of lords, so that when we think about the people in exile, it's it's not just negative. It's not just that they were in captivity, but instead the kingdom is growing. So that in Daniel, where we just read, 
That, that kingdom is expanding and growing, and Daniel is second in command. And we see it all come to its fullness then at the incarnation. Heaven bends down, and Jesus takes on the person, uh, the form of flesh. He became a man, and so God made man is born and walks on the earth. And if you would turn then back to the book of Matthew. You see, in the early, early chapters, the story of the advent, of the incarnation of Christ... And in this first part, its conclusion is with the death of Herod. So he slaughtered babies in an attempt to kill the king that has come. But in verse 19, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead." And he arose and he took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee and came and resided in a city called Nazareth. That, was, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So one king dies. Jesus is brought back to Nazarene, and John begins his ministry of proclamation, the kingdom that was promised in Daniel, the king that was promised in 2 Samuel, in the Davidic covenant, the one who would rule forever, that kingdom and that king are near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's proximate. And that message is picked up by, by Jesus in chapter 4. So when he comes from Nazarene, again, it's the same reference. He's coming from the north, and he begins his ministry proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what ought you to do? Repent. Repent because the king is here. And I want you to hear then in what we pray for, thy kingdom come. In Matthew, it's not just the kingdom of God, it's the kingdom of heaven on earth. So there's a king, but there's also a, a realm in which he rules. And so the realm of heaven where the king rules, is now mirrored in the realm of earth. Thy kingdom come on earth. And specifically here, John the Baptist, Jesus, and he tells his disciples as they go out in chapter 10, all to preach the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. The time is ripe. It's ready. You've waited 500 years, give or take, um, from, from these promises. And the king is here. And he references then Isaiah chapter 40. Remember what Isaiah says. It's written again to the people in exile. 
A voice is calling, clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. It's looking forward to the gospel of Matthew. It's looking forward to the incarnation of Christ let every valley, let every high head and exalted personage be brought low and every humble person be lifted up and together the people of God's earth, the inhabitants of the earth will be made a plain, an entryway for the king of glory to come in and then we hear the proclamation, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, Yahweh God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. And so the God of heaven has come down to earth, and he is ruling. And that's the proclamation of John, and it's the proclamation of Jesus. But he says it's at, at hand. And so it's been being prepared all of these years. There's an expectation, a longing, a prayer for the kingdom of God to come. That's what Daniel would have been praying. He saw the vision of the kingdom that's coming. He would be praying, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And they've been waiting and waiting. And finally then, the waiting, that kingdom is at hand. And the story of the Gospel of Matthew is about the nearness and the coming of that kingdom. And so throughout the Gospel, the preaching is about the kingdom of heaven. What is that kingdom? It's kind of hard to put your finger on it, isn't it? What is the kingdom? In one sense, it's easy. It's broad. It's big in that the God of heaven is ruling on earth. That's what the kingdom is. And yet throughout the Gospel, it's shrouded in a little bit of mystery. It's explained in parables. What is the kingdom like? It's comparable to a mustard seed, something you can't see. It's small, and yet it grows, and it grows, and it becomes a, a, a mighty tree that the birds of the air nest in its branches in Matthew chapter 13. Or the next parable, the kingdom of heaven is like, like a, a bit of leaven hid in three pecks of, in three pecks of measure, and it, it's small. And yet it grows and it's hidden and there's this idea of the secret kingdom that we found in Daniel's, in the vision of Daniel. It's a mystery. It's hidden. So for the, those who don't have eyes to see, for those who are wise in the world, that kingdom appears as nothing even now, even in the Gospel of Matthew, when it's right at hand, when the King of Glory is coming to enter in and he's right under their noses, it appears as nothing. Could turn back with me then to our prayer. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of these petitions are connected together. It's calling on God, the Father in heaven, who's anointed his son as the eternal king, our father who are in heaven, make your name holy. Well, his name is holy in heaven, but when it extends to earth, the way that that's fulfilled, the holiness of God, the holy name of God fulfilled, 
is when he places it on his house. We see that in the tabernacle and the temple. His name is associated with his house. It's called holy because he dwells there. But specifically now in our prayer, make your name holy, and the name is made holy by filling the earth with the house of God. It's a kingdom now in which God the king comes to reign. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to come back in just a minute to uh, thy will be done. But first, I want to see, observe one more, one more thing. Flip to Matthew chapter 1. Sorry for all of the page turning this morning. I'm not that sorry. I'm still making you do it. Remember that the beginning of Matthew's gospel is written as a reflection of Genesis. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Remember that Genesis is written as a series of genealogies, or Toledotes. It's written to tell the story. And the first one in chapter 2, verse 4, is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth. And here in Matthew chapter 1, we have a mirror image then of that, that genealogy of the heavens and earth, and it's contained in the person of, gene, of Jesus Christ. It can either be looked at as the end of the genealogies of Genesis or as a new genealogy. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And within it, then, we have the story of Jesus, the God of heaven and earth coming down and dwelling in his people's midst, his kingdom has come, or is at least near, but it's not until the end. So if you would flip then to the end of the book of Matthew. Jesus came and spoke to them in verse 18 of chapter 28 and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so at the beginning of the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At the end of the gospel, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We know how this happens from Acts chapter 13, from Psalm 2. God promised, I have anointed my king, my son, on Zion, my holy hill. And he tells him, ask of me and I will give you authority. And at the resurrection of Jesus, that sonship, the kingship that God promised is anointed. The authority is here, and the kingdom of God has arrived. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And I'm sure this has been noted before from this pulpit, but that verse is a mirror of the end of the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 36. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may Yahweh as God be with him. And let him go up. So from Genesis to the end of Second Chronicles, we see then Matthew is a, a mirror of what happens, everything that's gone before, beginning with the story of the, the making of the heavens and the earth, 
we now have a new heavens and the earth formed in the person of Jesus. Heaven bowed down, and Jesus is born and walks the face of the earth. And at the end, as he's resurrected, all authority is given to him. He is the new and the better Cyrus, who takes his people and he sends them out. Cyrus sent them back to make, to make Jerusalem, to build, to build Jerusalem within the city of Judah. But Jesus sends his disciples out into the whole earth, all authority in heaven and on earth, no longer contained in a kingdom, a, a small kingdom, small K kingdom, or an empire, but one that floods from heaven to earth. And so he then gives this command, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we have a new story being written, a new creation in Jesus, but that new creation is the fulfillment. Thy kingdom come. It's now landed from heaven on earth. I lost my place. This is the fault of having a new Bible. I can't find anything anymore. But pages were falling out, so something had to be done. In this new story, Jesus refers to it as the, the regeneration, a, a genesis that occurs again. He looks forward and he tells his disciples, if you enter into this kingdom then you will join me in ruling. You'll sit on the 12 tribes ruling over the nation of Israel. And so then we see the beginning of this kingdom. So we come back then to the question, if the kingdom is inaugurated through the incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, where he's now invested with authority as the king of heaven on earth, how then do we pray and what does that mean now? I want to look at a, a few more verses in the book of Matthew and make this observation, and I'm not the first to make it. Part of Matthew's rendition of the prayer of Jesus, and I'm not saying Matthew made it up, Jesus said it, this is his, his prayer, is how does your kingdom come? It comes as the will of the Father in heaven is done on earth. So his will is wrought out in our midst. And how does Jesus become inaugurated as king? In that very same way. So that in, in Matthew 26, Jesus is praying and he's praying in the garden. And he says to God, not my will, but thine. So even, even as the God of heaven coming down, Jesus is fulfilling this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on heaven as it is in earth. He is submitting his will underneath so that God has subdued him, underneath the God of heaven, my Father who is in heaven, not my will but yours be done. And in that statement, he's led to the cross, he's led through resurrection, and he's anointed as king. Now, as we consider how to pray this, we first have to recognize that this prayer must be fulfilled in us. 
The will of God is the will of God in heaven, the Father in heaven, is done first in us. We are earthly beings. We're made of earth. And so when God's will is done from heaven into earth, it's done in us. And so throughout then the gospel of Matthew, I'll show you a couple spots. In Matthew chapter 7, look in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so first, that, that prayer is worked out in our midst, in our bodies. We do the will of God. We're called to do the will of God. And if we want to be kingdom citizens, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, that's done by submitting ourselves as Jesus did. We follow in his footsteps in saying, not my will, but your will be done. And that's part of this prayer. When we say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's saying, thy will be done in us. In us, the earthly beings. Do your will in us. It's a submission of our entire lives so that we give up the, uh, the, the right to shake our fist at God, to complain about the lot that he's given us. Instead, his will is to be worked out in our lives. And that is part of how the kingdom is brought to bear. So there's a, a second, uh, second way. So turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, second part of this, uh, this fulfillment. And look in, look in, in verse 48. Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So in two different ways. First he says the one who does the will of the Father is the one who enters the kingdom of heaven. But along with that, he combines this second picture, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. The one who does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my mother, my brother, my sister. So he is part, then, of God's family. So it's a, a combined picture of a household and a kingdom all wrapped up in one, in which then we take on the household name of the God of heaven, and he rules in and through us. So what do we make of this? Should we still pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Jesus taught his disciples to pray this, of course, after the first advent. He was already walking on earth. The king was, had already arrived, and he tells them to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And through, throughout the centuries, the church has continued to pray this prayer because although the kingdom is here, it's not complete yet. That kingdom is worked out in our midst, in our flesh, so that it affects everything that we do. It affects who we are, our identity. We're subjects of the kingdom, but not just in a spiritual sense. We're subjects of the kingdom on earth. His will is being wrought out on earth in our earthly bodies, but amongst all those who know it or not. The king has arrived, but that kingdom is not in its 
is, is not here in all of its fullness. And so we're continuing to pray for the working out of God's kingdom in our midst. So one way to think about that is as God has been crowned king in the person of Jesus there at the cross and being lifted up to the right hand of the heavenly father, his kingship is established. His realm is established. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has authority invested in him over heaven and earth. That's done. But the effects of that kingship, the effects of that rule and reign still have... Uh, still must be worked out throughout the whole world. So I heard, I heard one person explain it this way. Uh, if you think about um, David's kingship, so first he was anointed as king, even while Stahl was still sitting on the throne. So he was, he was anointed, and that was a, a good period before he got to sit down on the throne. So he's anointed as king, and then... Saul, Saul dies. He then becomes the king of Judah. He's established his throne then. But it's still another period of time before the rest of the, the nation submits to him. Now, he is king already. But there is an elongated period of time in which there's both a battle and a proclamation. This is the king. God is the king. And so our situation looks a lot like that. Jesus has been anointed and invested with authority. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. He is the king of heaven and earth. And so now we make a proclamation of his kingship to the world, to all of the outlying, outbounding uh, colonies here in rural McKinney, Texas, which is no longer rural. It's just a city of cement. God is king here over the government of our land, over this church, over us as individuals and our families and over our neighbors. And so we're called then in considering the incarnation and praying for thy kingdom come to both pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and to proclaim that authority that is invested in Jesus is an authority that's been extended to us to proclaim his kingship, to make disciples so that his will is wrought out in the earth. Now, one, one last point before we close. Remember that Matthew has this heavy emphasis that it is a kingdom from heaven. God's will that's done in heaven is being wrought out on earth. And we need to remember that as we as we pray and as we proclaim. It's a heavenly kingdom. So he, he says in John, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and uh, I'm sure we all know and maybe have even abused that statement before. It is now extended to earth, but it's a kingdom that comes from heaven. That means that we who are of the earth, earthy as Paul calls us, we have to be made heavenly. And so as Jesus comes down from heaven, we are heavenly subjects, working out his will on earth. And this is the future that God promises. This is the future that, that he has begun at the incarnation in our midst. Let's praise him and ask him to complete this work in us. If you would stand and pray with me.
Father, your plan from the beginning is amazing, how you work it out through centuries and through men. And Lord, we stand in a position of privilege to see the expression shown in the person of Jesus. We have the treasure of the knowledge and the revealed face of the glory of God in us. Lord, it's our prayer today that you would complete your good work. We want your name to be, to be hallowed in our midst. We know that when the holy name extends upon an unclean place, then destruction and judgment come. And so we pray that you would be at work in and through us, that you would give the vested authority to us to proclaim with boldness that the king has come. And not only has he come, he sat down at, on the throne. He rules with a rod of iron. And Lord, we know that you have done that in a way that's beyond expectation in and through the cross. And so we give you praise. You are our good heavenly father. We thank you that you have brought us into your family and will cause us to enter into this kingdom. And we pray that you would work out your will in us this morning. We give you praise and glory and honor in your name. Amen.